Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, Theresa May buys herself more time. I was I wanted to have this sorted before Christmas. I bought uh, a deal back from the rest of Christmas. Labour splits threaten to burst open. If they fail to honour the unanimously agreed policy at our conference in favour of a public vote, they too will be judged very harshly by history. And Chris Grayling is all at sea. This Transport Secretary's approach to transport and wider Brexit contingency planning is off the Richter scale of incompetence. And welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. We meet as MPs once again prepare to vote on Theresa May's Brexit strategy with no end to the impasse in sight. Joining me is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth is also here. Hello. And our very special guest this week is Labour MP Caroline Flint. Hi, Arj. Hi, Caroline. And we're in the lovely surroundings of your office today, aren't we, Caroline? Yeah, it's a lovely office. It was Peter Haynes. It took me 18, uh, 18 years as an MP to acquire a room with a view. <laughs> Hard labour, I can tell you. It's nice and big. It is nice. It is nice. And uh, I have to be honest. I have to own up to something. Um, after, obviously, very sadly, we Labour lost the general election in 2015. I did with a um, James, who worked for me at the time, um, we did do a recce of those who were no longer MPs and, and Peter had stood down. Had a little list with numbers of rooms on it, did a little uh, scouting, Very went good. and checked with the staff, got, got to Mark Tarmy, I think, who was, who was and he still does the accommodation for our site, and, uh, and uh, basically put my towels down first. The top tips for MPs are to the room in Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right, let's crack up. So, uh, while MPs are debating Brexit today, the Prime Minister has managed to delay the real high noon by promising another set of votes in two weeks. Um, Now here's a clip of Jeremy Corbyn accusing the Prime Minister of running down the clock. In truth, Mr Speaker, it appears the Prime Minister has just one real tactic, to run down the clock, hoping members of this House are blackmailed into supporting a deeply flawed deal. This, Mr Speaker, is an irresponsible act. She's playing for time and playing with people's jobs, our economic security and the future of our industries. So, Paul, what's been happening this week and what's happening today? Well, what's been curious is the week started with this bloke called Ollie Robbins, who's the PM's chief negotiator. He's an official, not a politician, was caught on tape by ITV, um, well, not quite on tape, but overheard in, on Monday in Brussels in a late-night bar saying what the PM's strategy might well be, which is to run the clock down and leave it to the last week of March to basically force MPs into saying, look, actually, my deal or actually maybe a long delay on Brexit. Now, 
there's lots of things that are interesting about that. One of which is I'm not quite sure the long delay is one of the options because, as he himself says, that you know Europe won't necessarily agree to a long delay unless there's a really good reason for it, either a referendum or a Norway-style deal being hammered out a bit more time. So the long delay bit, I'm not sure. But the thing that was really interesting and sounds right is leave it as late as possible, force MPs into my deal or you know possibly the abyss. And I thought that was quite interesting. Well, I don't disagree uh, with that, Paul. I think actually it's almost in the interest of the EU as well to leave it to the wire, to be honest, because um, in in a different way, but in a similar way, they're dealing with managing 27 member states. At the end of the day, once people like Ollie and his equivalent on the EU side go on holiday, it will be the politicians, it will be the heads of state who sort this out. And at that point, like a lot of international uh, negotiations... Um, if there is going to be a little bit of movement, a little bit more flexibility, maybe a little playing around with the language and the wording that suits everyone, it's going to happen at that final point to not allow enough time for others to say, oh, I don't like that. So I'm not cynical about it. I think this is just sometimes the way, you know, big discussions amongst lots of partners uh, work. Um, and uh, I think I might have said a few months ago, certainly before Christmas, um, don't be surprised if actually it goes to the wire. Yeah. That's interesting, actually, that the idea that even the EU wants to delay to bounce the other 27 member states into something that maybe yeah. it would be difficult to agree with. But anyway, Caroline, May is banking on you and, 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 <laughs> and a lot of other Labour MPs backing this deal, otherwise she's mm-hmm. not really going to get it through, is she? So are you going to back it? Well, what I, I would maybe phrase it a slightly different way, if I may, Arj. I think what Theresa May realised in the run-up to Christmas is um, that relying on trying to keep the Conservative alliance together with the DUP was looking nigh on impossible. The the numbers, for different reasons, from hardline Brexiteers to hardline Remainers, uh, was going into sort of treble figures sort of thing. And therefore, she's going to have to reach out. And, uh, and, and that is something that I think we've seen significant signs of since we've come back after Christmas Uh, not only reaching out internally to yes people like me who have said if there's a reasonable deal on the table we should support it and obviously myself and other colleagues presented our case for something more definite about um, protecting workers rights uh, and other areas of standards that we believe are important as we leave the European Union but also you know a little bit of um, you know pushing back and forth, also Jeremy Corbyn. And let's not forget, uh, again, one of our asks was for her to pick up the phone to trade union leaders. And uh, for so the first time, I think, in two to three years, a British Prime Minister has actually not only had a conversation on the phone, but a conversation in person with some of our major trade union leaders. And you were a key driver for that, weren't you? That's what's interesting mm. to me, is that as a, you're a former minister, you know the way things work, but also as a backbencher, you've been quite canny in saying, actually, I've got leverage, mm. and my leverage is to try and get my front bench talking to their front bench, yeah. but also the PM to talk to trade unions. Mm. Now, obviously, you're quite pleased about that. That's mm. The way it's panned mm. out has mm. been like that. But do you, do you... How many, in terms of numbers, do you think you've got on your side? We saw, actually... Um, the number of people voting against Yvette Cooper's no deal plan. Yeah. Um, you know, there were 25, weren't there? He totally either abstained or voted against. Yeah. Do you think that number is going to grow? Because we keep being told that it actually will grow. That's not, that's not the, the floor. Um, mm. You know, not the ceiling, mm. it's the floor, and it could be bigger. Do you, mm. do you get that impression? Um, yes, I do. I mean, I thought it was significant. I think of the uh, 25 to 27, because obviously there were, a few, <laughs> there were a few who were 
were elected as Labour MPs but now are under an yeah, independent banner, which confuses You're everything right, as yeah. well. Um, but um, I think nine were shadow front benches who we, you know who abstained in that process as well, and and I think what it's reflecting uh, too is the concern about uh, the very visible and uh, an amplified voice of those who want a second referendum in our ranks, which sometimes I think distorts the number of people who feel that actually we need to respect the outcome of the referendum in 2016 and get a deal. Um, I think if there was a free vote, um, that would be the number would be significantly higher. And I'm sort of coming to the view that maybe that's something that deserves some consideration because it allow colleagues who clearly want to overturn the referendum result um, to vote the way they want to vote. But in genuine good faith, it allows people like myself and others who really feel that if we can get some concessions, if we can get some sense that things are going to be different as well in the way the government approaches stage two and there's a reasonable deal on the table, and quite frankly, if it's a choice between a deal or no deal, we should support that and be given the room to do that. You've said in the past it could be around 45. Yeah. You think it could be even higher than that? Well, I mean, 50? Lisa mentioned, I think she said 40 to 60 on a programme, right. Lisa Nandy, this is, on a programme. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, I think we know, um, you know, that there are around that number, maybe a bit more, definitely a bit more probably, who are very concerned about if we end up in a situation where... And I don't think it's going to happen because I don't think there's a majority in the House, but we keep prolonging the idea or expectation of a second referendum and don't want that uh, because they stood on a, a manifesto uh, in only 2017 saying we were going to get on with things and do do what we needed to do as a as you know the sec, you know one of the main parties in British politics. Um, so yes, I think there are, and I think it's it's you know. The Tories have had their problems, but we've had our problems as well. It's been a pretty unhappy time and uh, of it. And I think everyone's trying to find their way through this difficult situation. But clearly, for a lot of MPs, for different reasons, and I totally get this, having been on the front bench and on the back bench, you're going to choose your time when you're going to raise your head above the parapet and say, I'm sorry, I'm, I've got to put a line down here, I'm not going to take it anymore. And I think that's the point we're getting to with some of my colleagues who are a bit fed up with it all. Um, some people who are supportive of a people's vote mm. within the Labour Party mm. um, talk a lot about um, tying EU rules um, to UK rules on mm. workers' rights. Mm. Mm. Um, how could that be done if we come out with a workers' mm. rights bill and a lot of Labour MPs end up backing the government on the Brexit yeah, thing? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of... I mean, I've spent quite a lot of time actually since coming back after Christmas thinking about this and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and what sort of model we might need to have. It's quite clear that you know, we will need domestic legislation. The interesting thing about it is we wouldn't actually have to open up the withdrawal agreement because it would be our decision and there's a sort of beauty in that. But I think what I, the way I would wrap it up is first of all, as we leave the European Union, do we make, how do we make sure we don't get regression on the the current shared, if you like, workers' rights we have with the European Union, and you can include health and safety in that. So I think, therefore, we'd need some uh, probably a, a, a legislation domestically to enshrine that in law. I think, secondly, is as we go forward, if the European Union strengthens the rights in any of these areas, what should be our response? I don't think automatic harmonisation will fly. I don't think that's acceptable. You can't take back control and just say, right, every time there's a decision in, in the 27 member states of the EU, we'll just say, thanks, we'll adopt it. That's not going to work. However, I do think that if we could have some sort of mechanism 
whereby, and it may be, um, uh, uh, it could be a body that may involve not just a parliamentary group, but maybe something like the Low Pay Commission, employers and trade unions, for example, to act as a sort of, if you like, the scrutiny body to when sort of EU law comes forward, they decide whether this strengthens. Because don't forget, Rachel, I mean, we do need to... We're far ahead of, of many EU countries as individual member states when it comes to employment law, and we're certainly ahead in a number of areas of EU law in this area. So we need some sort of body that has authority and legitimacy to have that oversight. I think then the question is, is how that comes back to Parliament. What I would like to see is rather that body um, or bodies just reporting to government and government deciding yay or nay, I would like something then to come back into Parliament where we would debate the issue and have a vote in Parliament. Now, I think that is, um, you know, a really, I think, inclusive way of giving this uh, the attention it deserves, gives Parliament control, but that allows us to be active in monitoring what's happening. And the beauty of it as well is, as a Labour politician, it doesn't detract at all from any platform Labour wants to put forward in the future when it comes to health and safety, workers' rights or what have you. Um, but I do think... And I actually... What's the way we've used dynamic alignment? I actually think that is dynamic alignment. It's saying we're not going to just harmonise... We're having a, going to have a dynamic process where we all engage, debate, and vote on these issues as they as they come forward. Uh, does uh, that does that is does that sound yeah uh, um, understandable? How, how how much does that rely on Theresa May remaining as Prime Minister? Though? Well, I <laughs> that's a good point because actually I talked to, I talked to a former cabinet yeah, minister no, this week who is taking fright at this whole idea of a, a bit of legislation on workers' rights. He said for every Labour MP that she gains, mm-hmm. she's going to lose people like me who think that actually. And he yeah. said, "Quote." unquote firing as well as hiring is why this country is doing really well economically so that's the, the you know the right yeah. of the Tory party but, but I think um, I think where I think probably where a lot of that is because because they think it's about straightforward harmonization I would take the rules rather than make right. the rules and um, and that's why I think you know we need to have a process that gives a system whereby um, we keep tabs on what's going on there's an assessment of what's going on and then that comes back into the control of parliament to decide whether that's something we want to adopt or not i actually think in workers rights it's (laughs) dare i say less complicated than say environmental standards i mean no offense but every other day of the week they're coming up with something on environmental standards and we might want to for example on that area again we wouldn't want to harmonize straight away because let's just say for argument's sake um the European Union, in its wisdom, decided that uh, to make driving safer, we want to double the size of wing mirrors. Okay. Um, <laughs> but we might think, hang on a minute, that would have an enormous impact on the car industry and a cost. And so it may, not only that, and actually I was talking to my husband Phil about this the other day, when we were sort of brainstorming what something like that would mean. Every car park in the country would have to change. I mean, have you ever tried to get in one of those bays with your cars at the moment? Imagine if the wing mirrors was double the size. So we, I mean, look, I'm not trying to be flippant about this, but I, you know, in those sort of areas, again, you know, we would need a process going forward. Now, others, you know, Francis from the TUC uh, has said, but you can never trust these governments, these Tories ever. Well, I mean, in some respects, you know, that's why we have political parties. That's why I'm in the Labour Party. I will fight tooth and nail to win a general election for Labour uh, to win. But I really think we have to have a sensible discussion. What I'm looking at now is as we get to the point where we really got it, it's make your mind up time. 
if I, if I, and I hope actually Labour as well, because I know this is very strongly what Jeremy and others, and I know Rebecca Long-Bailey is also concerned about, part of our job as her manager's opposition, it seems to me, is to try and influence this. And we need to influence it ahead of that decision we're going to make. And now's the time to use our leverage, but not in a, um, uh, a way that doesn't understand the complexities and bringing the house with us, but doing the best we can to safeguard the rights of people and ensure we don't fall behind in the future. And I think this is one of the areas where we can make some progress. Mm, Interestingly, just to come back to the numbers, I was speaking to one of the MPs, Labour MPs, who abstained on Cooper 1 um, last night, and they said actually they might vote for Cooper 2, which is interesting. Are you Mm. picking that I think um, I think the presentation of Cooper 2 there's been quite a lot of work gone into it I know there's been quite a lot of lobbying of individuals uh, about this I've obviously it was only published the bill yesterday Mm. on Wednesday so I've sort of had a look at it and gone through it my initial um, and I have to say I was a little bit surprised to hear Keir Starmer on on the Today programme yesterday morning as I was having my tea uh, saying that it was a three-line whip already. I mean, to be honest, I think there's a bit of, been a bit of a high-handed approach to some of this that hasn't actually involved a wider group within the PLP. It seems to be, you know, there's some, you know, deals and discussions that go on and then we're all meant to just go along with it. My So if, I, if you want to give you my initial take on Cooper 2, at its most benign... I think it's a clever way to sit on the fence. It doesn't have anything in it about what a deal should look like. It doesn't have anything in terms of being against a second referendum. It's all process. At its most worrying, I think it is a Trojan horse. I, I think the, um, uh, the mechanisms that she's putting into this um, allows uh, those people who already, who aren't interested in any deal, um, and want a second referendum to further frustrate and add in amendments and add in times. I know that um, she was asked why there is not a cap in terms of a date in the bill. And uh, she gave some reasons as to why not. But that's crucial. That's crucial in this. Because uh, we do have European elections coming up. If we don't have some sort of break, even if I went along with extending Article 50 then we will find ourselves running into a situation where we will be forced to stand in European elections. And I know there are colleagues saying, oh, no, they'll, well, they'll give us a wave. I'll tell you what, if there's any of that goes on, you bet your life Farage will challenge it in court and force us to stand. And then possibly you could have his new party. I can't remember what it's called. What yeah, is it called now? It's, yeah, oh, well, yeah, yeah. his new party and possibly a people's party wanting to, um, you know, reopen the referendum. Mm. Um I think, you know, all that does is create huge problems about how we bring the country together again. So I, I, I'm very concerned about this because I think, you know, it's, uh, it, is, uh, it is tried to shift from what the original Cooper 1 was about, but it's essentially the same. It, it opens the door to, not, to having more extensions, but without any product, if you like, in front of us, with any deal with in front of us, to decide, well, why do we need an extension? And, and don't get me wrong, I am not dogmatic about a situation where it may arise, where we do have a deal on the table, more maybe in the political declaration, a cast-iron guarantee we're going to have domestic legislation to deal with some of the things I was talking about earlier on workers' rights. But we may need, the government may need, a bit more time to wrap up the legislation to do that. And therefore I'm not dogmatic about, in those circumstances, 
seeking to extend Article 50. I just think that's common sense. But a sort of idea that on the never-never, getting to a point where we decide when we're going to leave, on the basis that we're not actually discussing a deal in front of us, I think that is just more game-playing. Okay. So it could be even worse, Cooper 2? I think sense. it could be even worse. I think it could be even worse. Because it's quite clever, because it's... The first amendment was all about parliament setting up a parliamentary structure to take back now i think the argument is being put forward well we're putting it back to the prime minister to do it so i don't feel listeners to techie about this essentially it's um again saying we want to have a, if 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 a decision isn't made on a deal i think it's 13th of march we would then want a vote on saying no to no deal i'm getting a bit tired of all that i don't want to go out with no deal but you've if, to be honest it, there is a truth that you have to then agree a deal um, to move forward but then it says if that motion is won if you like to take no deal off the table the Prime Minister has to come back with a, a motion uh, to extend Article 50 which can be amendable and that's where the danger of the game playing coming into that all over again for all different reasons and uh, and as I said I mean the part of the problem with the um, uh, the first um, amendment, Cooper 1, and the bill was that there was a date on it towards, the, I think, the end of the year. Now there's no date on it at all, again, which leaves open the possibility that we could just go on forever and ever on this. And that, to be honest, I mean, look, the other problem with that presentation is that those who rush to support it are the ones who want to stop us leaving the European Union. And they're entitled to their point of view, but that is not really, I think, a majority of you in the cross house who respect we're going to leave. One of the um, amendments that's getting a bit of traction today is um, Ian Blackford, the SNP Westminster leader. And his, it's a very straightforward amendment in that it, it just says a, um, extend Article 50 by no more than three months. Mm. Um, w- would you be su- supportive of that in any way? Um, and doesn't that kind of allow some of those people's vote? MPs to organise within those three months. Well, definitely, and also, I mean, my, I suppose, you know, maybe I'm sort of a very, I hope, simple but straightforward approach to this. If you're going to talk about needing an extension, we've got to have something on the table to explain why we want that extension. It goes back to your point earlier, Paul, when you said about, um, well, going to the European Union. They'll want to know, well, what are you doing? Are, are you literally have you agreed a deal, but you just need a bit more time to sort out the legislation, or do you want a referendum, or what? What is the reason for the extension? And you know, everything is in, still in play at the moment. I mean, you know, there's been exchange of letters between you know the Prime Minister and Jeremy Corbyn, uh, our leader. There's been meetings. There are ongoing meetings as well happening uh, with other um, uh, ministers and officials. There's discussions, as I said before, ongoing with the trade unions. Clearly, there's discussions going on around the backstop and the whole Northern Ireland thing. So it's it's all in place still. So until we've got something that comes back on that, and of course, I know people say, but what, what about if she comes back really late into a deal? Let's be honest about it. Every single day we are discussing this, the nuances of what's going on, who's speaking to who, what's happening. It is important, I think, that before we get to the point where, you know, it's not, it doesn't come as a huge surprise, this is the deal we've got, that we have a good sense. And I think, I, you know, it's absolutely right of what changes are between the deal and the first deal. But, do you know, when the first deal came out... Um, Clearly, there were things in it that both on the Conservative side and the Labour side disagreed with. But actually, when you look at the withdrawal agreement, even in the, our own PLP brief, there are aspects of the withdrawal agreement that we were agreeing with. 
that we didn't have a problem with. But the focus is all on what we have a problem in with rather than what we don't have a problem with. And the debate gets distorted in that way. Right, let's move on. We've kind of, t- <laughs> We've kind of touched on it, but um, now that Theresa May's rejected Jeremy Corbyn's compromise offer of a customs union, a lot of Labour MPs are now saying it's time for the party to back a second referendum. Um, there's even been talk of a full-blown split in the party over this. So we're now going to hear from uh, Unite boss Len McCluskey, who's not too keen on a second referendum that has remained on the ballot paper. Is that having had a 2016 referendum where uh, the people have voted to come out of the European Union, to try and deflect away from that threatens the whole democratic fabric on which we operate. So, so, so you do. A... Paul, could Labour really split over this? It depends on who you talk to at any particular point in the day, to be honest, right now. Um, some of them, when they're really, really frustrated, it, it, almost like a, a fit of peak, you might say, right, I've had enough, I've had enough. Um, they've, now, they've got some legitimate grounds, some of them, because they say, actually, we're not being listened to on anti-Semitism. They, and I thought for a long time that might be the trigger for some of them going, because they're really, really upset about it, you know. Mm. Um, and you, But the real reason, obviously, would be Europe, because the, the reason, if you do have an excuse for leaving or forming a breakaway party at least you can say to all those party members look actually I'm doing what you want and overwhelmingly party members we keep being told more than 80% of them actually want a second referendum we keep being told this I don't know how sure the stats are so if you're if you're thinking of a breakaway party you might think actually I've got cover there you're going to get a huge amount of abuse and who knows whether it would work whether you get funding whether you're funded by big donors you know um, Ian Lavery told us in his blog from HuffPost at the weekend, you know, you're going to lose your seat, you're not going to get any trade union backing, you won't effectively be a a, a proper Labour MP, you might call yourself something. So there's a massive problem for all these people who are thinking of setting a breakaway party. Um, But, you know, only in today's FT we heard that so-called one of the ringleaders is considering resigning and causing a by-election. Now, that ringleader, who could that be? It might have be Chucker, let's be honest, because who else, you, where, where would you think you could win a by-election? You're not going to win necessarily in Chris Leslie's seat, are you, a by-election? And where, where, I think Chucker's the only possible mm. candidate for that. Then it would be interesting, you know, his local party, obviously members there don't particularly like him, so he might be already thinking in that direction. I don't know, but one MP, is that going to trigger lots of others? It's really, really difficult. It's like doing a David Davis, isn't it? Yeah, I um, know. Look at his by-election. I mean, he won it, but, you know. You, you sort of touched on the wider concerns in Labour about anti-Semitism and, and things like that, and concerns with the leadership, and I suspect John McDonnell calling Churchill a villain hasn't helped the mood <laughs> some MPs. So, Caroline, is the Shadow Chancellor actually a bigger villain than Churchill? <laughs> Um, um, he's good at apologising for things that he's said in the past. I know that much. Uh, you know, look, I, I honestly, I, I didn't understand why he got into that. I mean, look, you know, Churchill, to my mind, you know, had faults and weaknesses. Let's be fair, all of it. And we've all read about the stuff about you know how much he could could consume and drink before he actually stopped in the House of Commons and still get through it. And he's had his own problems with the Conservative parties. I think he was in quite a few parties talking about parties and people leaving. I think he was in the Liberals once, Conservatives and what have you. Um, but undoubtedly, he was a massively important, um, iconic figure and leader during our darkest time during the World War Two and. Uh, we should never forget it's the sum of all someone's parts rather than just sometimes the mistakes they make we need to look at and i hope that you know with john um you know he recognizes that 
you know, we have an important role to play as a Labour Party to reflect what we've said in the general election in 2017. And, uh, and I know he understands that because I think his own constituency, a majority voted leave, um, and that we have to find somewhere to bring people together. And it was never going to be easy, this. Um, and, uh, and I hope he, Jeremy, and the rest of the Shadow Cabinet will stand by the commitments we made in the manifesto and do their best now to influence the best possible outcome we can get for a deal. Rachel, a handful of uh, Labour front benches are turning up at a Love Socialism Hate Brexit event today, seemingly with free reign. How, how come? Why are they getting free reign from the front bench? Well, I mean, I guess you could ask the same question as to why the ministers who abstained on the Cooper Amendment in the in the first instance why they got a bit of um, um, leeway as well. I think um, Jeremy Corbyn's probably in a position similar to. Theresa May's and that he has to keep all wings of his, mm. his party mm-hmm. happy and move slowly towards a, a position, that would be my prediction. But um, it it's a, sim- similar to a, a meeting a, a few weeks ago where um, Clive Lewis and other MPs were kind of very supportive of a second referendum as, as well and they have since faced no action. You know what I found really interesting in all this is Keir Starmer. I mean, Caroline's right. Keeping the PLP united is actually one of the most difficult things, but also the most smartest things you can do as a leader, no matter who you are as a party leader. And it looks like Jeremy Corbyn has learned the, on the job of being a leader that actually keeping the PLP united on this issue, or on other issues it, it, it's not, um, um, is really crucial to the future of the party mm. and, and whether or not there is a breakaway. Yeah. And what I found interesting is Starmer's role in all of this. He has been understanding the, the sort of thing that Caroline has been talking about and been slowly trying to warn the people's voters, look, don't be too extreme, don't go now, this is, you know, we've got to, we've got to keep people together. That's his, been his position, but he's slowly notched it forward over time into sort of saying to people's voters, hang on, we might get there in the end. And I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what he's up to in that sense. <laughs> what, Nor am what, I. What do you think? <laughs> um, I think uh, you're... Uh, I'm afraid to say, I think your an- analysis is, is true. I think... Um, I think... To be honest, whether it was a, whoever was Prime Minister, this was going to be such a difficult thing to manage. Um, and if we were in government, we'd be facing some really difficult decisions and choices as well within our own party, but also in terms of the negotiations. And I think it's equally difficult for, obviously, you know, Her Majesty's Opposition Party. And, and, and the interesting thing, I, at the start of some of the discussion after the referendum, there, was, there were quite a few articles about looking at, you know, Europe being the Tory problem. In many respects, because the Tories have been so out there on this for many, many years, the last 30 years, it's sort of masked, really, the differences of views within the Labour Party. We sort of put it to bed after, you know, we, you know the decisions were made under Harold Wilson and others, and, and, and leaders after that were quite clever, Tony Blair, but also those before him, masking some of our own problems, because we could all just see the Tories beating each other up all the time and point at them. This has exposed... Um, something in our own ranks, a very big difference between probably our cities um, and our town communities. You know, the vast majority of Labour members, I think the last time I looked at this, dominate London and I think the North West when you take in Manchester and Liverpool. But outside of that, in, you know, the post-industrial towns, communities as well, we may have a smaller membership, but we're absolutely essential in those areas to delivering Labour governments. And, and, and therefore there is a you know, disproportionate voice in this. If you just look at numbers, you can say absolutely the vast number of Labour members 
probably want a people's vote. But then you have to look demographically across the whole country about how we win elections down the road, but the influence of those people. And I, you know, I just feel very strongly in all of this that uh, whilst, you know, as someone who came in 97, there's no-go areas for Labour and I want support from people from all walks of life, I am passionately heart and head linked to what I call our bedrock of voters who stick, who stuck with us through generations on every issue through good times and bad times, who voted leave in large numbers, Labour voters, or think we should get on with it, who need to be respected. And it has saddened me enormously that even in my own party, um, some of the accusations made to them as being sort of just unthinking, stupid people and worse has been soul-destroying. Um, but we've, you know, we are where we are and we've got to try and pull this together, which I go back to again, you, you know, the point about people using Europe as a reason to leave our party, I can hope that's not going to happen, but the truth is that's been rumbling away for the last sort of 18 months at least. Um, let's have a free vote and then they can vote with their conscience and they don't have to have a reason to leave the Labour Party. I think, I think one of the reasons why this um, it serves both party leaders to allow it to move very slowly towards mm, a conclusion mm. is that there's no real um, win in backing either either side very explicitly because mm. the, and a lot of people talk in very general terms about yeah, leaving Remain yeah. voters. There's a lot of um, Remain voters in the, the Brexit heartlands of the north and yeah. there's a lot of Tory Remainers in southern cities and other areas where Theresa May will have to win those, those people yeah. as well if she yeah. wants to win yeah. it. So would you, say, would you say good riddance if they do want to go and form a grand breakaway party? Well, I wouldn't use that language. I would be sad about it. But I, I you know, I also feel that, you know, it, you know, if there are, I don't think there's a lot, I think there's a handful, six, seven tops, if I was working my way through it. Um, I think probably as well, to be honest, Paul, um, I think every MPs of all parties, when they're going through these um, decisions, um, you know, choose their time. There will be MPs for different reasons who maybe have, would have been thinking about maybe if they'd been in an election in 2020 instead of having the 2017 come early, that they'd have been retiring. Uh, and some of them probably will as well. So, but some people clearly want to. I've been thinking for a long time about leaving and forming a new party. I don't think that will work. I don't think it will be successful. Um, and it will cause clearly disruption and you know um, anguish I think within our ranks because we'll be losing people who I'd hope would stay but they will be a minority and the truth is where are they going to stand because the likelihood is if they stand against Labour in our Labour areas they'll let a Tory in so they could they won't win I don't think but they'll be responsible for ensuring Tory governments. You say you say you say they will. Um, is that because you feel like that nothing can be done now? Oh, I think some people. Are, I think some people are hell bent on going. Dead. Right. right. Moving on, it's been yet another nightmare week for Chris Grayling following the cancellation of the Seabourn Freight No Deal Brexit ferry contract. We're now going to hear from the Transport Secretary saying the government has taken the right decision. Mr Speaker, as I have repeatedly made clear, not a penny of taxpayers' money has gone or will go to Seaborn. The contracts we agreed with the three ferry companies are essentially a commitment to block book tickets on additional sailings after the UK leaves the European Union. 
So actually, we've taken a responsible decision to make sure that taxpayers' money is properly protected. Uh, Paul, this was the least surprising news ever, wasn't it, the cancellation of this contract? It kind of was, and you've been really good on both of you in reporting this, that actually the intricacies of that contract, you know, and the way the lack of due diligence was absolutely, frankly, appalling. I think a lot of civil servants are, are sort of quietly, quietly ashamed of what happened really that they were allowed to be bounced into it um, I think we, we have one of our reporters Jasmine this week who reported on Bernadette Kelly the perm sec who gave evidence to the PAC um, who was saying that basically they took the word of, of the company that they had this big Irish backer and you know it's, and they only had that confirmed after the contract was let I mean it's just all in terms of the the dignity of a civil service, never mind the government, it just seems a real mess. I mean, Chris Grayling is one thing, but I think the civil servants, from what I hear, are just really upset about the whole thing. Caroline, you were on, you're on the PAC. You were you were there at the hearing yesterday. What, what's your take on what's happened here? Well, um, yeah, I, the dead hand of Chris Grayling. I mean, <laughs> let's remember some of his uh, contributions in Justice when he held that brief as well. We could do a whole podcast on <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> so what do I think on this? Um, I think uh, that um, within the DFT, um, it was sort of last summer when they started to maybe wake up that they needed to do a bit more preparation around freight capacity. But I think as things trundled along, it was only as we sort of in the autumn... Um, it became clearer that actually a deal wasn't going to be decided before Christmas. I think they went into panic mode. I think they went into panic mode. There was always an issue, and this came out in the hearing yesterday, that um, uh, you know shipping companies don't normally contract with government. It's, it's new. It's new. It's not like the relationship we've had with the rail industry over some years. And I think they um, underestimated um, the lack of certainty from that sector. And so when they did go to procure capacity, they ended up with hardly anybody coming forward. And then the looming situation that a deal was not going to be decided, I think they took shortcuts on this. I think yesterday what came out and Sir Geoffrey Clifton Brown, Conservative colleagues on the committee, um, you know, was saying asking about due diligence in all this and whether the checks were made on the company directors, what was the certainty about Arklow who was meant to be providing the ships, that was there, let alone I mean, you know, I think, you know, Ramsgate and the community around there and the opportunity to reopen the port would be fantastic for that community. But to be honest, even going down that route raised a whole load of questions about getting it ready for row row ferries. The mayor of Ostend was concerned about whether they would be ready. I mean, there were so many factors that in any procurement procedure, you'd say, hold on a bit, but I think it must have been panic. Mm. And they have absolutely uh, paid the price for this. They have shifted things and, and moved things around. They're still working. And, but part of this is all about, you know, preparing for the no deal. When we all have, there isn't a deal, but the amount of time and effort from across government, they're having to apply to this. And I think, again, um, you know, sometimes a lack of understanding by civil servants about how the private sector works and what they need in order to be confident about applying for a contract. And to be honest, they were left with sort of, you know, three companies at the end of the day, one of which has clearly fallen overboard for one of them. <laughs> 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 Chris Grayling all at sea. How is he still in the cabinet, Rachel? The million dollar question. Who's what's he got? Touched on some of his failures as just as secretary as well. One of them was trying to ban books for, for, for prisoners. Um, oh, no. um, another one was uh, the uh, G4S tagging contract oh, God, yeah. um, and a 
think it was called a catastrophic waste of money that they spent mm. 24 million mm. on that mm. um, it, well he's in, the, he's in the cabinet because he's a Brexiteer I think he, dis, he described himself in one interview as the, the lightning rod yeah. for, for Brexiteers mm. uh, when David Cameron was Prime Minister and just before um, he suspended collective res- um, responsibility and allowed Brexiteers to go and campaign Chris Graylin was key in kind of holding that together, and I think he probably has a similar role. Mm. He's got now more lives than any other politician in recent years. Do you remember when he had that whole issue? You might remember when in opposition mm. the Tories, when it, there was a Tory conference, um, he he talked about gay B and Bs, and and he kind of endorsed the fact that B and B owners should not allow gay people to visit that, and he survived mm. that. Although mm. Cameron remembered it and made sure he was demoted, mm. but he mm. somehow came back. He ended up almost being Theresa May's campaign manager. So don't forget yeah. that yeah. in the leadership. I think she remembers that. Um, at one point he was touted as the Brexit secretary, don't forget, in one reshuffle. So she obviously likes him, um, but obviously I think the next big cock-up, he really is toast. But of course, no one's going to see that next cock-up. Will Grayling go before May goes? <laughs> Good point. Wow. Put a bet on that. On that, it's time for the quiz. That isn't one of the questions, though. <laughs> too hard. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this week's quiz is all about the Tory Hard Brexit European Research Group, which Ooh. is today oh, threatening to rebel against Theresa May's Brexit strategy. Um, so, question number one. Who set up the ERG? When did they do it and why? One individual, you mean? Which individual? Ooh, that's a really good question. Was it Peter Lilly? Oh, that sounds like I'm guessing it might have been Peter Lilly. I might be wrong. And when and why? What are you saying on this? Oh, was it? It can't have been Peter Patel because she was a minister. They were founded to sort of literally, European Research Group, find some stats on, you know, the whole issue of Europe from the US sceptic point of view. And I think it was Lily because it was. I don't think it was. It was anyone who was directly linked to. Was it after the referendum or before? That's the good point. I think it was just before. I think it was before the Cut referendum. Us out of our misery. Yeah. <laughs> You're way out. Oh. It was set up in July 1993. Oh my god. By Michael Spicer, then MP for West Worcestershire. Uh, he created the he created the ERG in response to growing concern about Britain's continued integration into the EU through the Maastricht That's Treaty. amazing. Oh, and you just educated it, me. Yeah. That is great. I love getting a bit. Was of it new specifically facts to and... research? Because it's kind of a running joke that they they <laughs> they never do research. any research. <laughs> no, that's right. They didn't produce. They didn't produce well, that's anything. One side. <laughs> it, yeah, they're still working on that. <laughs> I've done a quiz. I'm not an expert. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Right, the first one. Yeah. Right, go on. Number two. The ERG sent a letter to Theresa May almost exactly a year ago today. What did it say and how many MPs signed it? Oh, God. Oh, that was the... Was that about the vote of no, no confidence in her or something? What was it? That, um, a year ago today. 17, nearly. was it? So it would have been question. February yeah, last year. Um, last year. I've got no idea. Did they send her a Valentine's Day card? Well, it was a couple of days after Valentine's Day. <laughs> okay. so was it, it, was it a letter saying you've got to stand by Lancaster House and yeah. not, by, not by what you've just done, which is Mansion House and all that? Correct. Yeah. Ah, right. uh, bonus points if anyone can get how many MPs signed it. 73? I reckon it would be around that. Something like 70 odd. I'm going to go 48 just to be controversial. 62. 62. <laughs> Final question. Uh, which three remain backing current cabinet ministers have at some point since 2010, at any point in time, been a member of the ERG? 
Oh, <laughs> Remain backing. You mean former Remain voters? Who they were... voted Remain. Right, right. yeah. Um, cabinet. Liz Truss? Cabinet ministers. That's a good shout. That's a very good shout. I, I like Do you that. want to just throw names out and I'll All tell right. you when you've got one? Definitely not David York. <laughs> <laughs> David York was one. No way! Oh, wow! Oh, my God. So the, the, the way it works is, they alloc- if you're, the way you count members of the ERG is if they've allocated part of their office expenses to the ERG oh. so and then you can access apparently there okay. is actually yeah, that's research the official definition access. you're right yeah. so David Gork is one is Sajid Javid uh, is Sajid Javid yeah and right. Jeremy Hunt no. no not Liz Truss no so um, one more we're looking for is it a woman no well, that narrows it down a lot <laughs> <laughs> I, was, um, I was trying there you know um, who else who else who else so hang on, so did, um, former Remain voting. In the cabinet. Oh, crikey. David Liddington? No. no, no David Liddington. He's, he's too wet. Sensible, isn't he? Can't, can't possibly be Greg Clark. No. Um, um, Jeremy Wright. Oh. Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock. <laughs> 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 I'm going to start, I'm going to put this to an end now. Well, it, was, <laughs> it was Brandon Lewis. Oh! Yes. Who, of course, famously is in a very, you know, leavish area, mm. but voted Remain, and has ever since been trying to keep his party together on, yeah. on leave. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. Yeah. Which goes to show, if, if we haven't got a clue who these people, they are completely anonymous to the general public. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to really have that reality check on yourself, I think. <laughs> Totally true. Right, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for, so let's finish off by listening to this brilliant exchange on Seaborn between SNP MP Drew Hendry and Chris Grayling, in which the Transport Secretary is compared to Admiral Lord Nelson. Thanks for listening. Drew Hendry. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, throughout this ridiculous Brexit shambles, Brexiteers have liked to lean on historical events to justify uh, the metaphors for some of their Brexit fantasies. Was this calamity actually engineered by the Secretary of State so that he could paint himself as some kind of latter-day Horatio Nelson? I see no ships. Well, we see no competence. Will he resign? Well, Mr Speaker, actually, I did see ships. They were lined up, ready to go on this route. It's a shame the back has pulled out. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.